I had pumpkin spice for the first time. I had pumpkin spice for the first time. And? It's so good. <laughs> yes. It's so yes. good. We can now say that our hosts love tacos and pumpkin spice collectively. Yes. Okay, so here's the thing. I just want to go on the record. I was never a pumpkin spice hater. I was no, not. No, you never were. You never judged it. You just weren't into it. I was not avoiding pumpkin spice. It's just in my youth, I thought pumpkin spice, in my youth, back in the day, I thought pumpkin spice meant it had pumpkin flavoring in it, and I don't like actual pumpkin flavoring. And then right. I learned that it's just the spices that you put on pumpkins, and then I just like never got around to it. My brain just always went pumpkin. You don't like pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. You texted me that and it made my whole day. I had my first pumpkin spice latte of the season. It was an absolute treat. I actually, what I did recently, actually, and by recently, I mean today, <laughs> is I bought a bunch of coffee syrups mm. online mm. because I've been into making my own, co you know, I make my own pour overs, my own cold brews. Yeah. So I figure if I can get those syrups, I can make my own fancy pumpkin spice lattes. And Did you do hazelnut? I didn't get hazelnut syrup. I can for you if you would like some. Yeah, I would love that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got uh, French vanilla, mm. caramel, and pumpkin spice. So if you get hazelnut and the caramel, I think that's just toffee nut. The combo of those two things is oh. toffee flavor. I get iffy about getting hazelnut because another friend of mine who loves coffee is allergic to hazelnuts. So I tend to just mm. avoid – I don't have the strongest passion for hazelnut things. So I avoid having it in my home in case I accidentally serve it to her. I feel the same way. I I don't like lavender. I never have. But I have a close friend who's allergic to lavender and now I just will not. Mm -hmm. This is a no lavender zone. I totally get it. Mm -hmm. But okay. So pumpkin spice – as a non-coffee drinker, I tasted a pumpkin spice coffee latte, and I get it because it didn't really taste very coffee-ish at all. But then I got a pumpkin spice chai because that is my Rowan, I MO. got one yesterday. Uh-huh. Because you sent it to me to get it. You told me to get this pumpkin spice chai latte. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, my God. It's a game changer. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And we even did it perfectly. Jamie and I were in the car together. We were driving to my nephew's fifth birthday, so we stopped at Starbucks, obviously. And she got it iced and I got it hot. <sighs> mm-hmm. Ooh. Because mm -hmm. we wanted to see. Both are delightful. The answer is both is delightful. So if you want a hot one, get it. If you want a cold <laughs> one, get it. <laughs> I had pumpkin spice twice my first day with pumpkin spice. Because if you're going to do something, you have to do it yeah. hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to this indie coffee shop in my neighborhood that I adore for my first one, and it was amazing. And then I later, all the way across town, dozens of errands later, went to a Starbucks. And the gentleman at the Starbucks was really friendly, and we were making conversation. And I said, oh, you know, this is my first day having pumpkin spice. And he went, oh, my God, I have to make it extra good then. And when I tell you it was extra good. <laughs> oh, I want to know that man's name so I can send him a thank you card. I know. He wasn't wearing a name tag. I feel like, I do feel as if he put whatever, I guess, the customer service version of love is in it. Mm -hmm. Like, he mm -hmm. gave it to mm -hmm. me and he went, I really hope you enjoy it. And I really did. <laughs> <laughs> Superheroes, the real ones, they don't wear capes. 
No. They make it, they make us hot beverages that bring us serotonin and they are so kind. I love hot beverages so much. <laughs> the irony is that this hot beverage love does also include cold beverages. Yeah, I just listen, I love coffee, I love tea. The only thing I don't love is matcha. I and maybe I'll get there. Maybe I will get there, but I'm not there yet, but I'm not a matcha hater. Right. I just I won't order it for myself, but I will pick up I will pick up four of them for you if that's what you want, my dear. Thank you. You know, mm-hmm. listen, I'm off matcha for the foreseeable future because I am such a pumpkin spice convert. Ron, I can't tell you how happy that makes me. <laughs> if I were a cartoon, I would have, you know, where their eyes get really big and they swirl around and yes. all of a sudden they're just losing their minds. That is me. Um, and I will not be accepting notes at this time. Yes, Tracy and I are both white girls from the East Coast. And yes, we will be marching around with our matcha for the rest of the season. Pumpkin spice, but yes. Oh, God. No, the Freudian slip. I've betrayed <laughs> pumpkin spice already. <laughs> pumpkin spice will forgive you for the mistake. My are at war inside me. <laughs> Listen, matcha is your summer beverage. It is your hot girl summer energy. Pumpkin spice <laughs> is your hot girl fall energy. And then we'll find you a winter drink and then a spring drink. Although I feel like matcha can go a- – it can be mm-hmm, spring mm-hmm. and summer. So we just need to get you a good winter drink. What's that popular tweet that's, you know, hot girl summer is over. It's time for witch bitch autumn. <gasps> Stop it. That's everything. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're in the middle of witch bitch autumn as far as we're concerned. Hi, mm-hmm. I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you, dear witchy bitchy listener, would <laughs> like to support this podcast, you can do so by subscribing, rating, and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. You can shop our merch at willingandfable.com. Join us on Patreon, which enables you to join us on our super secret Discord. Or you can shop at your local orchard and go apple picking in the nice, cool, or warm autumn air, wherever you are. Or just drink apple cider or make apple spiced pancakes in the comfort of your own home. I wrote this when I really wanted apples. Clearly. But no matter what you do, (laughs) we appreciate you. I wanted apples. I wanted apples. Okay, so on the note of apples, I have to tell you, I went to my favorite vegan restaurant the other day, which I will be taking to you. Don't you worry, your pretty little head. Good, 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 good. Gluten-free French toast with cinnamon scalloped apples and cashew cream. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. what I was dreaming of when I was writing this. Yeah, the going from pumpkin spice to apple conversation is... We're just really hitting this theme hard uh, Mm -hmm. on this podcast and as people, truly. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, hi. Also, we have some new patrons to thank. Yes, we do. Huge thank you and shout out to Jessica F. Coleman and Katrin C. Welcome to the Willing and Fable family and the Willing and Fable cult that is not a cult for legal reasons and tax purposes. We're so happy to have you. We have been hard at work on some fun art. 
uh, in your names. We've got mm-hmm. some, <laughs> the Discord has been, I love it when people join the Discord truly because I feel like I get to see everyone's favorite GIF pop up. <laughs> For anyone who yep. is not as familiar with, I guess, Discord culture as a whole, when someone joins a server, you do a GIF that's basically, hello, welcome. And I feel as if the gifts that we all choose are such a signifier of everyone's mood. Definitely. Definitely. So, hey, if if you want a gift thrown at you, <laughs> welcoming you. If you want a ton of people excitedly welcoming you into a space. Yeah. Join our Discord. Have you always wanted to be in a cult? We do not have a cult for legal reasons and tax purposes, but if we did, you could join it. <laughs> <laughs> And if you don't want to be in a cult, or even if you do, send us your listener legends. You know we did episode 50 where we read a bunch. We are slowly but surely collecting some new fun ones. We got an email just last night in the wee hours of the morning. Hey, late night person, I see you. I was up too. Um, We would love (laughs) to hear about your crazy family stories, your great aunt's cousin's mother who was a witch, Honestly, anyone who is a witch. (laughs) Anyone who is a witch. The hometown spooky story you all told yourselves at night. That time you went camping with your cousins and they jumped out of the woods and scared you, making you think they were a Bigfoot. The story your uncle tells about when he came home from college and saw an alien. My uncle often tells a story about when he saw an alien. What? Make him write us. (laughs) (laughs) I will do my best to make him write us. (laughs) Wait, hold on. What? Tracy! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he uh, he brings it up like every few years that he's very insistent he saw an alien spaceship. Okay, okay, we will be examining that at a later date, <laughs> you and I. <laughs> so don't be like Tracy's uncle. Do instead write us with your story. You can head over to our contact page on our website, willingandfable.com, or you can email us at willingandfable at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And then we have one last Really, really cool bit of Mm -hmm. housekeeping. Yeah, we saved the best, most exciting housekeeping. Well, no, it's all been exciting, but we saved this one for last because this is the one we've been working on the longest. We've been working on this for months. Uh Uh-huh. So we got back together with Jamie, our illustrator, Fly Robot Fly, on all the social media and also Tracy's amazing twin, And we have some new merch as a Halloween present to everyone. (laughs) We have new merch, you guys. Oh, I'm so excited. I am over the moon about these designs. They were ones that Rowan and I vaguely came up with. And then we tossed over to Jamie and said, make something amazing out of this. And she, per usual, knocked it out of the park. I would say that. Tracy and Jamie really spearheaded this, and I just came along and proofread some things. Tracy oh, no. came up with Rowan this. Rowan is selling herself short. <laughs> I come up with big general concepts. Jamie does beautiful designs, and then Rowan notices every tiny detail <laughs> that my brain doesn't care about. I'm like, this looks good enough. And she's like, there's there's nothing about this is even or symmetrical. <laughs> I'm like, no one cares. And she's like, I care. <laughs> And that's why we work great together. (laughs) So we have our design that is celebrating liminal spaces, I would say. We call it Fresh Told Stories. It is the Willing and Fable diner sign. Mm -hmm. Tracy came up with that. Jamie made it this beautiful kind of pop art vintage 
poster design. Yeah, you know when you see those those old school diner signs where it's, it says fresh coffee here, 25 cents. I wanted it to be that, but like Rowan said, a liminal space of fresh told stories and coffee. Then we had many requests for a proud hag design. Jamie knocked it out of the park. It is a tarot card design that says proud hag with a giant mother Shipton hag butterfly in the center. Insanity, truly. I didn't even know that was an option available to us. A lot of people asked for Julie Dobney's 13 rules to be made mm-hmm. into a poster. And if anybody remembers, these were her 13 rules for basically smashing the patriarchy, our sweet little arsonist bisexual from history. <laughs> and so Jamie and Tracy took the 13 rules that I had written out for my story in that episode, and they made it into this amazing poster. And it is on our merch website, but also as a special present to our patrons who asked for it so much. We're releasing that artwork for free to any of our patrons, mm-hmm. so you can print it out and put it wherever you like. It is currently in my phone background because it's this gorgeous infographic where it's all different squares for each of the rules, and there's little pictures to go along with them. I am so excited for you guys to see this design. It's sassy, and we never would have thought to do it if everyone hadn't asked for it, so we wanted to make it available to everyone who has been supporting the podcast for so long. So if you're a patron, please get ready for that announcement. It's coming for you. And then the last piece of merch that we have been refining. We have been working so hard on this one. Y'all, I am wearing the sweatshirt right now. We made a We Get It, Your Goth spirit board design. I, Tracy, (laughs) (laughs) from the beginning, I wanted this so bad. I wanted it so bad. And Tracy and Jamie, they made it happen. We pulled so many different vintage spirit boards images from all over the place we were looking at shirt layouts we got crazy guys this is the one as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. well who doesn't want a t-shirt or poster or phone case or i'm buying all of these things this is me listing all the things that i'm buying (laughs) from our own merch store with a spirit board that in the center says, we get it, you're goth, but still has that yes and no, has the numbers, has this beautiful star spooky design. I, listen, I love a spirit board design. I'll buy any of them. I'll buy all of them. I own way too many things with it. To have it then poke fun at itself, <laughs> it's peak humor to me. That's the, it is the one. So y'all, sorry if we're just geeking out too hard, but it is just an absolute privilege for us to get to collaborate with Jamie and make such fun artwork based on mm-hmm. things that people told us they liked from the podcast. It's, it really is a good time and we work very hard on it. So we hope you enjoy. Let us know which designs you like best so we know what we should uh, keep working on. Honestly, if it's not We Get It, Your Goth, this friendship is over. <laughs> No, I love Proud Hag, too, though. And Fresh Told Stories I have already hanging up in my house. So I'm torn. I love them all so much. God, this is so embarrassing. Okay, so I think (laughs) about this all the time. My mom and my dad always say that, you know, you have to support your own artwork. You Mm -hmm. have to be an advocate for your own creations. So every time I wear or use our merch, of which Tracy and I both have a lot because we test it out. Yes. um, 
I remind myself that I'm just being supportive of myself. <laughs> I don't know what it says about me that I don't even think twice. I just love the artwork on all of our merch that I wear it shamelessly. Have you ever had anybody mention it to you and then talked about it as if you weren't the creator? Because I absolutely have. <gasps> I have not. And that's my dream. Wait, have I not told you this story? No. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. I'm the worst. I always go to the grocery store. Everyone knows this. I go really late at night, which means yeah. I go I I don't look nice when I go to the grocery store. It's always it's always sweatpants and messy hair and half asleep. So I wore the we get it your goth the first iteration of that design mm-hmm. that we were testing, the sweatshirt. And I was wearing it <laughs> And I was probably looking at something stupid like cereal or crackers. I was in one of those middle aisles. And a girl came up to me and was like, ah, I get it. Like pointing at the design. And I just talked about the podcast as if I wasn't the co-host. As if you weren't rowing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I fully, fully pretended I was just a fan of Willing and Fable. I know. That poor girl's going to listen to this and be like, I had a whole conversation with Rowan and didn't know. Oh, my God. No. Do you think she's actually listening? Did she get the reference to our podcast or just that it was a funny Ouija board reference? I mean, I told her. I told her she should check it out. It's a good podcast. She'd really enjoy it if she likes goth stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Please write in if you are this mysterious. Grocery store person. Oh, no. (laughs) If you are, we have to be best friends now. God, I'm turning scarlet. Hey, let's transition. All right. (laughs) So we're going to start talking about the topic for today's episode, which we (laughs) themed Memento Mori. The ultimate we get at your goth topic. The ultimate we get at your goth topic. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) How long has this been on the books? Um, I mean, this was absolutely one of the first episodes we planned for season two. We get it. You're gone. (laughs) We get it. You're gone. Okay. (laughs) The term memento mori is Latin for remember that you must die. It serves as an artistic or symbolic reminder of the inevitability of death. The concept has its roots in the philosophers of classic antiquity and often appeared in funeral art and architecture of the medieval period. Memento mori jewelry with skull or coffin motifs became popular in the late 16th century, and it was reflected in the artistic genre of vanitas, where symbolic objects such as an hourglass and wilting flowers signified the impermanence of human life. The concept of memento mori can be seen all over the world in architecture, art, philosophy, and literature from the ancient Greek period all the way through to today. The goal of many pieces of memento mori is to encourage people to value their lives or prepare for the great beyond. It emphasizes moral virtues and the happiness that enriches life past societal status and personal belongings. While memento mori have become increasingly associated with Christianity due to their prevalence in Christian art and culture, Professor Lees of Art 101 points out that this practice is widespread. She highlights the skulls in artwork for the Mexican Day of the Dead, Japanese death poems written by Zen monks on the verge of their own demise, 
In modern times, British artist Damien Hirst's 2007 sculpture of a diamond-encrusted skull is a perfect example. And then we have The Weeknd's radio show titled Memento Mori. This practice of embracing death during life is not relegated to one culture or style of expression. Friends and foes, as you know, we're talking about death today. This includes close examination of the medical world, the passing of people of a variety of ages, including very young children, as well as the ways their loved ones mourned. Listener discretion is, as always, advised. All right, Rowan, what do you have for us today? Truly, I am about to reveal myself because my topic is, it is really a we get it, you're goth move. (laughs) It really is. This whole episode is. Yeah. I mean, we did. We saved the merch announcement for a reason. So the art that first introduced me to the idea of Memento Mori was Victorian death photography. Mm Mm-hmm. In Victorian England, as well as other parts of Europe and the U.S., by the mid-1800s, photography was becoming increasingly popular as it was becoming increasingly affordable. Introduced in 1839, the daguerreotype was the first alternative to painted portraits. And while it was expensive, it was definitely a step toward the more accessible. A daguerreotype is a small, highly detailed picture on a piece of copper plated with a thin, mirror-like coat of silver. And the process allowed people to have a true-to-life image of a loved one captured by a camera. Its popularity increased the number of practicing photographers, which led to the development of the wet colloidian process by 1851. And this involved the much more affordable use of glass, which later evolved into the tintype and then the embryotype. Even so. Capturing these images was no five-buck run to CVS or even similar to the cost of printing a roll of film in the early 1900s. In America, during the 1840s and 50s, the average photograph would cost $2, which is about $60 today. Wow. Which explains why it was such a, a moment to have your photo taken, why you would do it as... Why people would have only one or two photos taken in their whole lifetime of their loved ones and their families. Yeah. The death of a loved one was oftentimes the first opportunity people had or thought to capture a likeness of their family members. Mm. And that has really stuck with me during this research because we have camera phones. We take pictures of everything. Even the most trivial moments of our lives are documented. 100%. Took a picture of my coffee the other day. Couldn't agree more. There are people whose only images of themselves exist after they died. Wow. Putting it into that perspective is wild. Yeah, it's really impactful. And I mean, if we go further, there are people who don't exist at all as far as imagery is concerned. They were never painted. Oh, yeah. Photography is just such a visceral medium because it is capturing a human as we see them there's no interpretation there's of no a artistic interpretation right mm-hmm. and uh, artists can influence the photograph but you're still getting the person and right the idea that the only opportunity you have 
to see your loved one after they're gone is when they're already dead is just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I first learned about this actually at an antique market not far from our hometown that my parents and I like to go to. And they had some Victorian death photographs, which in my youth were very expensive to me. And now I am kicking myself daily for not purchasing them. <laughs> they were just, mm, it was so moving. It was a family and a young child. It's something that I don't know if our listeners know about you or not is that for as long as I've known you, which, well, okay, I've known you since we were six. So not quite as long as I've known you, but basically, you have always loved to collect old photos. Mm-hmm. Those bins where they're a dollar a picture of random people, you will buy a handful of them and keep them. And that's always been, you've always been to, you've always been one to collect the memories that other people have thrown away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love antique photographs. If they're written on, even better. I used to have mm-hmm. this amazing collection of antique photographs that were weird. They were just weird. Yes. Those are the ones that I always think <laughs> of when I think of you and your antique photographs. One of the photographs was these two guys holding up a blanket that was a quilt, actually, and it was sewn three-dimensional boobs. It was just a blanket of boobs. (laughs) And then I had another one that was this creepy photo of kids in a Halloween costume. I just had so many, and they got ruined during a move, which is heartbreaking. I, You know, actually, I say it's heartbreaking. It's not. I, I, I loved having them. I wish I still did, but I feel as if the people who took them and then I got as much enjoyment out of them as a Mm -hmm. piece of paper could possibly give someone. Mm -hmm. Like, I got this extended life out of them. Yeah, yeah, you took them on an extra journey. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I guess it's good that you're saying that. I wouldn't have thought to mention it. Yes, hi, I love old photographs. (laughs) (laughs) So Nancy West for The Atlantic reports, quote, Historians estimate that during the 1840s, the medium's first decade, as cholera swept through Britain and America, photographers recorded deaths and marriages by a ratio of three to one. Wow. So three times more deaths recorded than marriages. Yep. In photography. Sometimes these portraits were of older family members who lived long lives. Other times they captured a young lady who died of consumption at what the Victorians believed to be the height of her beauty. Mm. Widows would pose with their recently deceased husbands. In many cases, these images were photographs of children posed with their toys, surrounded by flowers, or as if asleep. As Beth Ann Bell, writing for the BBC, points out, Victorian nurseries were plagued by measles, diphtheria, scarlet fever, rubella, all of which could be fatal. So many people were dying at this time, mortality rates were incredibly high. Penicillin wasn't successfully used until 1930, which I think is easy to forget because the Victorian era seems so modern in comparison to the stretch of time before. You know, we got we have photography now. What do you mean we don't have penicillin? Mm-hmm. The industrial era is happening. We've got machinery. We've even got early cars. Exactly. And industrialization m- meant that city populations were booming. 
And people could live in incredible wealth or incredible poverty, but they were very close together. On top of that, we had increased means of transportation. So people were traveling further and faster. And this meant that disease could travel just as easily. All this interesting reports that, quote, most people couldn't expect to live past their 40s. Today, Victorian death photos may seem disturbing, but for people in the 19th century, they provided comfort during times of grief. Mm. This practice, though especially poignant due to its real-life capture, was an extension of death masks and mortuary paintings. Right. Victorian-era English poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, It is not merely the likeness which is precious, but the association and the sense of nearness involved in the thing. The very shadow of the person lying there is fixed forever. Referencing the 1842 post-mortem photograph of his father, English author Russell Mitford said the image, quote, has a heavenly calm to it. Interesting. I, it's such a different way than we think about photography and death today. I can see it being comforting when it is seen as a tool to remember someone for a long time, whereas we see photography as a tool to remember people in their prime, in living, because we have such access to it. But back then, if your only access to it was as this tool to remember a loved one, to have this likeness of them, I can see, I can see it being very comforting. Right. And death was such a part of the culture at the time period. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing it actually a bit because of COVID. But when death becomes so widespread, there is this acceptance of it. And an interest in it. Right. Yes, there's an interest. And it uh, opens up room for humor and a variety of expression. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm different ways to engage with it that are must, much less closeted, I think. Yes. Yeah. After big periods of tragedy, generations are seen to have different senses of humor than those of older generations who didn't go through those same experiences. So millennial Gen Z definitely have a different sense of humor than the generations above them. I, You and I have talked about this, actually, but I think it's very important for death to be uh, discussable at all yes it, and art is one of the finest means of communication we have from music to photography to paintings to i don't know just any writing oh wait mm -hmm. you and i do that <laughs> <laughs> and write a poem about it <laughs> yeah right <laughs> a b a b baby <laughs> i just find these photographs so compelling and it's very common at the time for children to pass before the age of five. And yeah. families would have multiple children. So it was not uncommon to see portraits where each child is lined up or posed together, but the youngest one appears to be asleep. And there are also portraits of the whole family surrounded around one deceased member with no particular emphasis put on that person's different state of being in the photo. Sometimes mourning parents would pose with their child in their arms, or sometimes mourning children would pose with their mother, who's appearing mm -hmm. to be dozing. And that, it just seems so validating to me. 
because just think about all the different ways we have to document people now. Like right. I saved voicemails from my grandmother that I listened to fairly frequently. I mean, enough that I would pay $60 for one. Right. So if you've lost someone who's a member of your family, they don't stop being a member of your family. No. So being able to document that and point to it and engage with it is, it's just, it, it makes so much sense to me, which is interesting because a lot of the articles that I read, some of them are like very accepting of it. They're like, yeah, here's the history. This is why it happens. And other ones are like steeped in spooky mysticism oh, and, and gothness. Oh, yeah. And that's, there are so many things that you can put in that category. Save it. Save those for it. This is just human nature. I mean, I told you when my grandfather passed away, all of his kids and all of the grandkids went to the house and took all of the belongings that we wanted before they packed up the house to sell it so that we could all have it. So the table runner on my dining room table is a handmade lace table runner from my grandfather's house. Half the art hanging around in my house is from him and my grandmother. I don't think of that as a spooky, scary thing. It's just a way to remember and love them and have a piece of them with me. I grew up going to their house all the time. So to have the poster my grandfather made in 1942 hanging in my loft. I love that just, poster. I love that poster. It's just, um, it's it's a way to remember people. It's human nature. It is not a spooky, scary thing. And I, I, like I said before, I see the photography the same way of if that's the tool that you have to remember that person in the realest way that you have available to you, that's not a ghost thing. It's it's a morning thing. Now, can you do fun stuff with photography and make ghosts appear? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Do that. Do the spooky oh, we're thing. We're getting there, baby. <laughs> I just agree with you. I don't see that. I don't see this as the same as intentionally spooky things like seances or using spirit boards or spirit photography. Right. And this is a branch of Victorian death culture. And the Victorians were doing things that were purposefully spooky, like a coffin ring is spooky on purpose and it's cool as heck and processing death via spookiness I love it and via mourning does not mean that they are the same thing i think that's where the lines get blurred yeah one's not more valid than the other and you it's not that you can you know they're not mutually exclusive you can wear a coffin right. ring and genuinely keep this death photo as a way to mourn and process your grief over a loved one and then, like, throw on a skull necklace, too, while you're at it, because it's cool. We get it, you're goth, you know? <laughs> we get it, you're goth. This is my <laughs> humble request for a coffin ring. All right. So, photographers usually worked incredibly hard on posing to create an image of a peaceful slumber, uh, but also editing after the photograph was developed. Many of these images show eyes painted over the subject's lids or cheeks that are blushed with a soft rouge. And with no easy digital editing, this was an art that involved incredible skill and practice. And while there are many surviving photos that show no sign of a subject's decay, there are just as many that reveal signs of disease or the the results of their death, fever sores or sunken eyes that cannot or are willingly not obscured. By the 1860s, the style evolved to 
include more animating corpses. So the recently deceased were posed in chairs, reading or playing. Often their eyes were open. This style (laughs) is one of the reasons that an incredibly popular portrait of Lewis Carroll is thought to be a post-mortem photograph. In the piece, he's lounging in a chair, he's like slumping, his eyes are half open, and he's leaning his head in his hand, which is a position not unlike those in Victorian death photography. But Lewis Carroll's very much alive in that photograph. (laughs) Because of the difficulty of the medium, deceased subjects were often easier to photograph Mm -hmm. than living ones. And you can see it in some of the portraits where family members pose with their loved one. Because of the long exposure times, unmoving deceased subjects would come out crystal clear, while the living would have a slight blurring effect to them. It was not uncommon for photographers to use cast iron posing stands for both the recently deceased and living subjects. Mm-hmm. It's also why you don't see people smiling in those photos. It's not that they're inherently so much more serious than we are today. They just couldn't move. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I will not smile for the length of this exposure. Thank you. They were anywhere from five to ten or more minutes. I don't want to smile not moving for that long. Could you imagine? <laughs> Roman is making the most intense grimace. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy West, writing for The Atlantic, says, quote, This slide into sentimentality, even if grotesque, coincides with a profound shift in Western attitudes towards death. The 1870s witnessed the advent of a religious upheaval in America and Western Europe. Traditional arguments about immortality lacked the weight they carried only a few decades earlier, especially among the middle and upper classes. Accounts of death during this period no longer expressed the piety and spiritual fervor of earlier times. No wonder, then, that the effort to tame and beautify death in daguerreotypes collapsed in the late 19th century. Like many religious shifts, the upper classes of Victorian society were the first to adapt their practices into something new, while more peaceful domestic post-mortem photography continued in working-class homes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The white middle class started embracing dramatic images of mourning. Portraits of women dressed in black and weeping into handkerchiefs or even turning their back to the camera were becoming commonplace. And imagine that expression of wealth. I have enough money for photography that I don't even need a picture that shows my face. Yeah, turning it into that art form. I get it. I mean, not the expression of wealth part, like that's insane, but the idea of wanting to... This is a way for the everyday person, at least at the time, the fancy ones, to express their grief creatively. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, I will tease them a bit, but I fully support it. Heck, today, if you want to dress up in your dramatic black gown and weep into a handkerchief and take pictures of it. Knock yourself out. We, what are we doing on this planet if not taking ridiculous photos of ourselves to cope with emotions? 100%. I, yeah, as much as I get it, I will also poke fun at it. But 
I didn't realize they did this. I think of the classic goth image of the woman in black all morning and all of that. I didn't I know every stereotype has to come from a bit of reality. I didn't realize how much it was yanked straight out of reality. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was on purpose. They were on purpose over dramatic photos. And I Okay, so another branch of the way that Victorians processed death kind of via fashion was hair, jewelry mm-hmm. and wreaths. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yes, yes. That could I could do a whole episode on that. Um, but We talked about that in the Mary Shelley episode. We did, and we talked about it uh, in the Winchester Mystery House. Yes. But that came about because Queen Victoria was wearing a locket with Prince Albert's hair inside of it. And she mm-hmm. mourned him for 40 years until her own death. She was like often called the Queen of Mourning. She wore black. She defined an entire period of yeah. basically what we would call goth fashion. Mm-hmm. And these photographs of women dramatically mourning are a continuation of that. So now, rather than posing with their actual dead loved ones, the living are capturing a portrait of themselves looking wistfully at another picture of their loved one captured during life. Mm. So this is evidence of how affordable and available photography is becoming, how people are getting creative with the medium. Suddenly people have an opportunity to capture images of their family before they're passing, so they're then utilizing that again when it's time to express their grief. Okay, that makes sense. By the 1890s, the trend in death photography turned to photographs of burial. Coffins and cemeteries were icons of the evolving style, and families would reproduce the photographs on postcards and send them to distant relatives. So where once daguerreotypes were small, expensive pieces of metal that were often encased in velvet and Mm -hmm. stored with a lock of hair, these images are now printed on paper that would be widely handled and stamped by the Postal Service. We are watching a style of art adapt both as costs change and as sensibilities change. Right. And I would say, actually, even though we think the photographs of the actual dead are more goth, the photographs of the funerals are a bit more goth. Actually, like we're now kind of getting a stylized quality. We had Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. memento mori. A a lot of times the postmortem photography, they would have that hourglass imagery. Maybe they'd have the wilting flowers. But now we're just going straight to the source. We're in a cemetery. We're burying someone. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, we're going for that full vibe. And now this is kind of a blend. To to my eyes, it seems more like how we take pictures of everything with our cameras. We can take pictures of things happening because we can afford to. You can take the camera out of the home and show off that that's possible while still using it as a way to process death. I am really passionate about photography. (laughs) Nancy West adds, the postmortem photograph had devolved from a near-sacred object to a formality, a social obligation. By the mid-1920s, it disappeared from public view, defeated by Kodak and its happy promotion of snapshot photography. Oh, so it's 
Photography is now a way, the way we think of it, it's a way to capture moments in life of people living, not a way to memorialize the dead. Mm-hmm. I guess we should have also said this at the top. Tracy's a photographer. Tracy has <laughs> been walking around with a camera for all of our time in existence. Yeah, basically since I could walk. Any picture of myself that I like, Tracy took. <laughs> <laughs> Rowan is uh, just the best model ever. We've been doing photography together for so long that we don't even need words when we work together anymore. It's just, you know the vibe that I want, and it's so much fun working with you. We'll share some of our photos sometime with, with everyone. Can the vibe be Victorian death photo? <laughs> Always. The weirder the vibe, the more I'm into it. You know this. <laughs> So you mentioned it before, but now I want to talk about spirit photography. Mm -hmm. Unlike the very wholesome desire to capture a remembrance of a past loved one in postmortem photography, spirit photography was actually based on a scheme. As time moved on and the Civil War ravaged the United States and World War I took its toll on Europe, it became increasingly popular to use the magic of photography to capture images of the already dead, despite all of the evidence that people had against its truthfulness. Where death photographs involved the world of the physical, spirit photographs were part of the metaphysical. Mm -hmm. The high mortality rates of the 1800s transitioned into this war-related destruction of the early 20th century. The spiritualist trend I described in episode Eight with the Fox sisters mm -hmm. was the natural progression of Victorians grappling with death. Photography became a way to capture evidence of people's deceased loved ones remaining nearby or existing beyond the grave. Okay. Okay. History is about to provide for you, my darling. I love this. I'm so excited. William Mumler and William Hope Yes, both of these jerks are Williams, are two of the <laughs> most famous charlatans of the spirit photography scene. The original versions of this haunted medium began with people standing in front of or behind glass windows or utilizing long exposures required at the time to create transparent images by having subjects move within the frame. Just like that blurring effect we were talking about, mm -hmm. now they're doing it on purpose to make things look creepy. By 1856, the London Stereoscopic Company used this technique to create a series of images called the ghost in the stereoscope. Three years later, glass plate negatives made double images possible and the medium took off. I mean, I did stuff like this when I was a freshman in high school in my film photography class. I think we had an assignment to do something like this. <laughs> I think we did. <laughs> The dark room is so fun. I love a dark room. I know. I wish I had access to one in my life now. I know. I don't anymore. And uh, no, Tracy, don't turn, don't <laughs> turn your basement into part of a dark. Don't do it. I want to. Do it. Do it. <laughs> do it. I love a good dark room door. If you've never experienced the rotating dark room door where it's <laughs> <Yes>. like <laughs> there's, a, there's a part of it because you can't let any light in. So it has to rotate in a way that doesn't let any light in. It's very fun. You know, if it's just your dark room, you can use a normal door. I, I only want a dark room if I can use the fun rotating door. I used to spend my lunch period in the dark room when I was in photography classes in high school. <laughs> was she a nerd? Yes. 
All right. (laughs) By the 1860s, double exposures were created with a cutout technique. Cameras became popular by the 1880s, allowing more amateurs to get involved. And then the charade began to somewhat die down around the 1920s when fashions changed to celebrating life with wild abandon. That's that post-war kind of Mm -hmm. rubber band snapback. And also skeptics like Harry Houdini were exposing people as frauds. Trace, I have provided a lovely vintage photograph for you. I love it. This is one of William Mumler's most famous images purportedly showing Mary Todd Lincoln with the ghost of her husband, Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is a classic sepia-toned photo with a woman, Mary Todd Lincoln, presumably, in the front. Um, She's in all black, mourning, very crystal clear, and then... On her shoulders, you can clearly see two hands resting on them. Directly behind her is a very faint image of Abraham Lincoln, who I would never have guessed was Abraham Lincoln if you hadn't told me. Really? That iconic beard that's barely visible? Yes, it kind of just looks at, honestly, at first I thought it was an older woman. Oh! It's very faint. I, I was actually wondering if maybe they somehow used a face of Abraham Lincoln in someone else's body or if they just picked someone with a beard. You could do that. You could, you could definitely cut out and use his face. What's interesting to me is all those pictures. I mean, people have been Photoshopping images as long as we've had images. You just right. do it in the dark room. And so those images of women from the Victorian era or the early 20th century with impossible looking waists, it's because they were impossible. It's, it's faked in the photographs. Wait. Real quick, let's just uh let's just say right like be very clear for as long as humans have been capturing images meaning painting, drawing whatever, there has been porn. Mm-hmm. And there has been basically photoshopping. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The airbrushing effect they could do with oil paint during the Renaissance, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> So this photo is, it definitely looks like a little spooky ghost of Abraham Lincoln putting his hands on the shoulders of Mary Todd Lincoln. Excuse me, he's not little and spooky. He's very tall and spooky, I think. That's true. He's very tall and spooky. I think he's canonically, like, insanely tall. I think he was very, very tall. (laughs) So William Mumler is credited as the first person to capture a spirit photograph in the early 1860s. Which sounds like really good press to me, because Mm -hmm. everyone was in the game at that point. Nevertheless, he was a jewelry engraver in the United States who caused a media sensation when he published a photograph of himself with the spirit of his cousin, who'd been dead for 12 years, appearing as a misty overlay, not unlike Lincoln, Mm -hmm. in the photograph you just described. Thus... This amateur photographer became, quote, a spirit photographic medium. Operating out of New York and Boston, he produced famous photographs of spirits appearing behind people sitting for portraits. So that image of Lincoln is like his thing. Mm -hmm. His business was fueled by those who lost loved ones in the Civil War. But P.T. Barnum, yes, P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus, 
believed he was taking advantage of grieving families. There were allegations that some of Mumler's spirits were still alive and that he'd broken into houses to acquire the images of the deceased for his art projects. So Barnum testified against him in court, and a purposeful fake photograph exhibiting Mumler's techniques was presented as evidence of his deceit. But Mumler was acquitted of fraud. Hmm. Which shocks me. That's, I guess that's just a heavy dose of spiritualism. Yeah. His career was ended, and nevertheless, even with all that clear evidence, no one could shake the faith of true believers, and this industry just continued to thrive yeah. for decades. All right, Tracy, now the next photograph. This one's spooky. This is a, a black and white photograph of a couple, man on the left, woman on the right, sitting looking at the camera, you know, old-timey clothes. In the center, hovering above them, is a woman with what looks to be a black veil, her head tilted down, looking up through her eyes in that Kubrick look. Yes, she's doing the Kubrick stare. Yes. She looks like she's got makeup around her eyes. Maybe she doesn't. She just has really wide eyes. But it is genuinely just this very spooky image and there's no body to her if she's got this long veil that you can see faintly going down through the whole picture but she's really just a head and veil floating above and kind of in front of this couple posing for a picture this is one of william hope's most famous spirit photographs and i like to call this photograph american gothic because it looks like if mm -hmm. someone took the painting american gothic and we're like okay but, like, what if we made it actually goth? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, I will say, knowing these photographs are faked, having made fake versions of this myself, looking at these photographs at 2 a.m. is a little spooky. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially that one feels intentionally spooky. The Lincoln one, it's just a little less spooky. That one, her face is a little spooky. The whole vibe of it's much spookier. These will all be available to be seen on our Instagram if you're curious. Yes, absolutely. We always post our reference photos on Instagram. So perhaps even more famous than William Mumler, we have William Hope. And he didn't come on to the scene until 1905, which is probably why his photographs look more advanced and more detailed. Mm -hmm. When he was taking a photo of a friend, he convinced himself that an accident captured in the photograph was actually a spirit's presence. So he believed he actually caught a spirit on camera. I don't know if he did or if it's just a, you know, you stay your lie for long enough, you, yeah, you yeah, buy yeah. into it. That's true. Hope was working as a carpenter when, not unlike Mumler, he gave up his trade job to make a fortune with his photography. William Hope formed the Crew Circle. All That's Interesting says that they were, quote, a group of six gifted spirit photographers led by Hope himself. Upon receiving the necessary ecclesiastical accreditation via the membership of Archbishop Thomas Cooley, the circle went public. Together, the crew circle printed photo after photo of people surrounded by the dead and circulated them to the masses, end quote. Ooh, interesting. I want a cool circle name. We'll get there. Okay. 
Like the Civil War was a boon to Mumler, Hope and his friends capitalized on the tragedies of World War I. In the 1920s, he moved to London and became known as a professional medium. Hmm. Now Hope's nemesis was Harry Price, the head ghost hunter and psychic researcher for the Society of Psychical Research. I have no reason to, and I hope this doesn't go on to change my opinion, but I love this man. Harry Price, head ghost hunter? I know. I hope he's a cool dude. Yeah, no, no, no. He's cool. He's cool. He's cool. We like him. Okay, good. Teaming up with fellow psychic researcher and anthropologist Eric J. Dingwall and William S. Marriott, who was a magician who was famous for exposing fraudulent mediums, the three were able to prove Hope's photographs were faked. Price published their findings in the Society's journal, but despite the bad press, Hope continued to have a successful career. Why? Well, probably because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes books and prominent spiritualist, was among the people who still believed in William Hope's work. And there is no cocktail quite as intoxicating as grief, mixed with super cool technology, and then the co-signing of someone famous. Mm -hmm. William Hope worked as a spirit photographer and medium until his death in 1933. I don't know if this is a true fact, but it is one that I've heard rattled around a bunch that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle genuinely believed Harry Houdini was a magician, despite Houdini saying, no, here's how I do the tricks. And Doyle <laughs> went, that's great. That's great that you're hiding how you actually do magic. How did he write the Sherlock Holmes books? That's what <laughs> I, I want to know. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't either, but I think it's great. All right. Are you ready for a story? I'm super ready. Okay. Statement of James E. Coyne, former spirit photographer, Society for Psychical Research, November 13th, 1919. I have a great eye. My composition is unparalleled, and numerous of my colleagues have commented on my use of shadow to define the tone of my portraits. I was in the industry for a good forty years. I ought to have it all buttoned up by now. I started out as a photographer's assistant. The work was morbid, but I felt drawn to it like Pygmalion to his sculpture. The man I worked for, a Mr. David Thompson of London, was all too happy to have me. He got into the game around the fifties, just as processes were becoming cost-effective. There was just so much equipment to haul into clients' homes. He needed a young man to do all the lifting. Besides, I don't think Thompson ever had a taste for actually interacting with the corpses. But I didn't mind it. I never have. I think there's something sentimental even beautiful, about people going to such great lengths for the ones they loved. He ought not to have cared about the bodies at all. The death photography was all that paid the bills. But it didn't matter, because he had me. Much to my parents' chagrin, I would spend every day travelling all over London capturing the images of the deceased. Little did they know how the art had captured my soul. Thompson became well known for his skill at creating lifelike portraits, 
especially as staging became more complex and corpses had to appear increasingly vital. No one knew that the work that transfigured his images was all mine. I don't mean to be arrogant, I just had a knack. I was always able to twist someone's mouth into a charming quirk or reflect a bit of light into a cloudy eye. Each night, by candlelight, I practiced the jaunty poses I would put our subjects in so that, come morning, I could very nearly convince a widow her husband was perching his head in his hand and looking up at her with the romance of the newly married rather than the slump of the newly deceased. So, it was a logical evolution for me to become a spirit photographic medium. Thompson passed, and I took over his business. The kind old bugger left me all his equipment, and I had the money to add the latest and greatest developments, and the industry was changing. I'd happily haul myself out to a muck-covered cemetery for a series of funerary shots, and I was happy to add rouge to the images of fallen maidens and paint eyes over the slumber of a babe in arms. There was a soft romance to it all, a tenderness within the embrace of the inevitable. I genuinely believe I provided an important service to the families who hired me, <laughs> and I did it damn well. But communing with the dead changed the game entirely. Now I was able to transcend this mortal coil and allow grieving families to see their child, their fallen soldier, their ailing mother, was but a breath beyond the veil, watching over them with a loving gaze. I'm no longer practicing, so I don't mind telling you how it was done. It was a simple double exposure that's all any of us ever did. Some might get crafty with fabrics or added lights, but... That wasn't the trick that made me famous. Not too famous, mind you, but famous enough. I made a comfortable living. I had an assistant of my own. Nothing fancy, just comfortable. My assistant, Alan, was a small boy, very small for his age. I didn't employ him to carry my equipment. No one ever touched it but me. No. I used him to get the photographs I needed. We'd have a meeting in the home of the client, I always required a pre-interview, and during the process of our conversation, the young man would fetch us a photo I could use in the later conjuring. <laughs> I honestly believe the young man might have become a pickpocket if I had not intervened for the purposes of our divine communion. I'd always asked to borrow a belonging of the deceased. A red herring. I'd distract the family by requesting a handkerchief or a uniform, even the dearly departed's favourite spoon. It didn't matter what the item was, as long as it was somewhat difficult, distracting, for them to acquire it, while Alan got to work in the rest of the house. With the necessary tools, and I certainly don't mean the spoon to channel the dead, I really do believe I did excellent work. I've seen parents cry after I captured the image of their spirit daughter reaching out a tender hand. The blurry evidence of a father at his place at the head of the table. A husband with his hands on his weeping wife's shoulders. I took my fair coin and I ferried my clients across the river of their grief to some semblance of technological hope. 
I was the Karen of the camera. I painted the shadows of their grief. I highlighted love in a gossamer ghost. <laughs> Some say I am not a medium now, but many still believe in my work. I ask you this. What must I be the medium of to be believed? Can I conjure a spirit of silver nitrate? Why should I aspire to anything so mundane as that? I can conjure comfort from grief as Christ turned water to wine. My alchemy is of the highest order, for my images transform time and space. Tell me I am no medium, and I tell you. There is no title yet for the man who defies death itself. I loved the story of it feels like this is written by the two men you talked about, justifying their artwork and the way that they interact with people. The arrogant artist. I loved it. Yeah, I, I like the, you know, researching this, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the real life grief and kind of the mm -hmm. recipient's end of things. But there's also a person behind the camera and uh, n not unlike, for example, the book House of God kind of describes how doctors have to cope with constantly seeing and affecting mortality. I imagine right. the the gentleman behind the camera had a, a very unique way of dealing with constantly taking photographs of the dead or manipulating people into believing they were with the spirits of their loved ones. I think it takes a special kind of personality to be that person. Oh, I think it would have to. Plus, I, I'm interested in the idea of like someone who's a little villainous in flavor, but then, you know, are his actions really villainous? How do we feel about it? Mm -hmm. I love the idea of him not thinking. He, he thinks he's the hero of this story. A good villain thinks they're the hero of the story. Yeah. You, you love it. Everyone's the protagonist of their own story. <laughs> Main character energy. He, he, he has nothing if not the audacity to be the main character. <laughs> so really quick, before I'm finished, I just want to touch on kind of the modern version of this because I think it's very easy to believe that these photographs are just a morbid fascination of the Victorians and mm -hmm. actually... Death photography is a very helpful art form today. So now it's called remembrance photography, and there are numerous nonprofit organizations that work with mourning parents to capture lasting, very beautiful images of their lost children. Um, mm -hmm. One is called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. They do great work. Uh, the University of Washington anthropology major Faustine Dufka, who researched this form of mourning for her undergraduate honors thesis. She said, quote, it's easier to talk about something if you have a photo to share. Photos are a gateway to bringing up memories of the deceased. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. In a lot of cases of death, I think people don't have anything else to to. You know, if you've lost a child, all of a sudden, sometimes there's this grappling of, am I even a parent anymore? Oh, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And having a photograph 
really justifies in a physical, holdable, seeable way that mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. And sometimes taking things out of the like chemical soup of our own brains is just really helpful. Right. And Tracy talked about this before. And I mean, clearly I am both fascinated by photography and the way that humans deal with death. But like, but you know, I have a photograph of my grandma on my bedside table. Like I, (laughs) I sometimes put on her really amazing perfume when I want to feel fancy, Mm -hmm. like a kid playing dress up. Like people do all sorts of things that vary on a sliding scale of normal to weird and who gets to decide what the scale is. Right. There's no there's no right way to grieve. And I think sometimes in the process of grieving, at least in my own process, I've done things where the things I do seem weird to me, but they still help. They work. Mm-hmm. And I if I sit back, I go, why am I doing this? And in the end, it makes such logical sense, but sometimes it's hard to examine when you're in the thick of the emotions. Mm-hmm. And I, I, having read a lot of articles on this, I think it's profoundly unhelpful to stigmatize death photography because it still exists. <laughs> I think it's unhelpful to stigmatize anything relating to the grieving process, to be honest, because it yes. makes it feel like you could grieve wrong and you can't. Your reaction is is what your reaction is. If you have no reaction in the moment, that doesn't mean you're heartless. It's a processing technique. It's a defense mechanism. If you are so overwhelmed you can't move on and something like putting your grandmother's perfume on is what helps you get through, then it's what helps you get through. Right. And I'm still kicking myself for not purchasing one of these photographs when I was a teenager. So if I ever come across one, I will immediately purchase it because I just want to... I just want to take care of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is very you. Well, that's actually a great transition into my topic, the idea of collecting things from deceased people. Ooh, ooh, mm-hmm. smooth with the transitions. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so my topic today is the famous Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. Is that how it's said? Yeah, it's on their website. It's actually, there's an umlaut over the U. It's supposed to be, like, pronounced with an E-O sound, but they say we're happy if you say muter like scooter. Oh, is it supposed to be, like, muter, like, get that little glidey situation in yeah, there? Yeah, that. I don't I do not do German well enough to be able I to. I don't speak German. <laughs> I don't do German either. It's not a language I ever took. <laughs> no. Yeah, because a lot of people will say the Mutter Museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I've been saying for my entire life. Never gave it a second thought. No, me neither. And I saw Sawbones, one of my favorite podcasts, live in Philadelphia years ago, and they covered the Mutter Museum, Mutter Museum. And part of her, Sydney, the one of the hosts of the podcast, part of her research was talking about how you can actually say it either way because of, he traveled all over the world and at one point had his name had people pronounce his name Mutter, and then other times had people pronounce his name Mooter. Was he just sick of it? He was just sick of correcting people? He was born in America, I think. So I couldn't find this in my research. This is from what I remember from a very old podcast that I saw live. What I remember was he was born in America and went by Mutter and then traveled to Europe and learned that it's pronounced Mooter and changed it. The website on 
the Mooter Museum says to pronounce it Mooter. So I'll be pronouncing it Mooter. Wow, that is the dissemination of language at its best. It truly is. So Rowan, have you ever been to the Mooter Museum? Oh, you know I have. Oh, oh, you know I have. I've actually, this is crushing. I've only been once. I've only been once as well. I can never get anybody else to go with me. And you, anytime I have the opportunity, like you're out of town or I'm yeah. out of town, like it just never works. We, we lucked out getting to go to Eastern State Penitentiary together, given that it is so famous and so in our backyard. It, it, we've been together twice at least, but we've known each other most of our lives. So the fact that we, so there's a lot of cool stuff in Philadelphia. Rowan and I do not get to go to as much as we would like. What were your thoughts when you went to the Mooter Museum? Oh, I, I was youngish. I don't know, young enough that I was, I don't think even in high school yet. I think I was just walking around with my jaw on the floor. It's so awesome. I, the thing that stuck with me most, I can't believe this, is they have, or at least they did when I went, this kind of map filing drawer that you mm -hmm. open up and inside are just all the things children have swallowed and they oh, we'll took out. Oh, we'll touch on that. And yep. oh my, some of them are huge. What yep. are you even doing, kid? Like, <laughs> oh, I remember a whole, whole dinosaur figurine and not one of those little ones, like a Barbie-sized no. dinosaur. Yeah. And these are all, so I haven't talked about what this museum is. This museum is <laughs> a... <laughs> A medical history and medical mystery museum that was created in the 19th century. So it is located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the museum describes itself as America's finest museum of medical history. The Mütter Museum displays its beautifully preserved collections of anatomical specimens, models, and medical instruments in a 19th century cabinet museum setting. The museum helps the public understand the mysteries and beauty of the human body and to appreciate the history of diagnosis and treatment of disease. Ugh, I would love if I could somehow go there with the absolute lack of understanding of science that a Victorian era woman would have. Like, if I mm -hmm. could just for a second walk around there, absolutely agog. Without any basic medical knowledge. The trick is, if you were a Victorian-era woman, you would not be allowed to go see the <gasps> museum because it was originally created for physicians only. How dare they? I know. It was supposed to be a teaching museum. Well, bucka bucka. <laughs> Well, as you can tell, the museum, despite being created as a teaching museum, eventually opened itself up to the public and the collection grew and grew. But some of the displays are still in their original setup. And it is meant to look like a cabinet of curiosities from the late 1800s. So, Rowan, I have a picture from the second floor of the museum for you to describe. Okay, this photo is really well lit. And in my memory... The museum had like an eerie kind of soft, dark golden lighting. And I need to know if that was just my memory. I think that was just your memory. <laughs> Darn it. Okay. So if anyone has seen Penny Dreadful, the season where she falls for the guy who works in the museum, this looks exactly like that. If you haven't, it's taken from the top floor where on the right side you've got cases and cases of who knows what. 
And then across the way on the left side, you've got just a wall of skulls. It's just Mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful skulls that I think I know what that is. And then there's a staircase down the middle, and there's a whole skelly at the bottom in a big old case. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just bones everywhere I can see. The only things I can identify (laughs) are bones. It's so good, and there's just that nice maple-colored wood everywhere. We got a Mm -hmm. nice red carpet. I could just... Just imagine the pretension of the men marching around here being all physician-y. I know. (laughs) So the Mütter Museum's website describes their history thusly. They say, The Mütter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia began as a donation from American surgeon Thomas Dent Mütter. He was determined to improve and reform medical education. Dr. Mütter stipulated that by accepting his donation of 1,700 objects and $30,000, the college must hire a curator, maintain and expand the collection, fund annual lectures, and erect a fireproof building to house the collection. The first building to house the museum was completed in 1863 and was located on Locust and 13th Street. When the College of Physicians built its current home at 19th South 22nd Street in 1909, the museum relocated with its original cases. Since Dr. Mütter's donation, the museum collection has grown to include more than 25,000 objects. Okay, hold up. How are you making anything fireproof in 1863? I think everything not. was flammable in 1863. I, think I agree. I think it's just that it's not made entirely out of wood and lard. I don't know. Something flammable. Thank you for being as indignant about that statement as I am. <laughs> they don't even make fireproof buildings today. Yeah. I, no, I, I think everything's flammable if you try hard enough. Yeah, it's filled with dry bones. it's basically just filled with human kindling is what you're saying it's what i'm saying oh god (laughs) we get it you're gone we get it you're goth so i also have been to the muter museum it is very cool and i wanted to learn a little bit more about dr muter and why he wanted to create this educational museum of curiosities So I learned that Thomas Dent Mütter was born on March 9, 1811, and died on March 19, 1859. He was an American surgeon who was born in Richmond, Virginia. However, he was orphaned at the age of eight and raised by a distant relative. Although his guardian remained aloof, Mütter proved to be a good student, so when he expressed a desire to study medicine, his guardian was supportive. He attended Hampstead Sydney College in Virginia starting in 1824 and graduated with an M.D. from the University of Pennsylvania in 1831. He eventually took a position as an assistant to Dr. Thomas Harris at the Medical Institute of Jefferson College. At the age of 30, he became the chair of surgery at the Jefferson Medical College, and he held this position from 1841 to 1856 where he resigned because of gout and lung disease. Oof. Yeah, he'd been affected by lung issues for almost his entire life. He operated on hundreds of patients to repair deformities, and he became the first surgeon in 1846 to administer ether anesthesia in Philadelphia. 
wow, that makes me uncomfy. Mm-hmm. That's, n- that's not long enough. Like, ago. There have been too many surgeries without that. Yes. Pre. Yes. No. As a big medical history nerd, I am so into all of this. I'm trying to keep it high enough level so that people who are... I have a hard time gauging how much of this is interesting to the everyday person because I could talk about this for hours. I'll be interested. Trace, go in. Oh, my God. Yeah, there was... (laughs) <laughs> no anesthesiology for a long time and if it it was likely just as likely to kill you surgery surgery was just as likely to kill you as whatever disease you had and for a long time there was a difference between surgeons and doctors there was barber surgeons who literally were barbers and surgeons because basically it was hey you have skills with knives so you'll do both they were more respected than doctors because doctors were seen as either useless or they would kill you oh i could go into this for hours i love this stuff I really need to go uh, to my lovely hair person and uh, be really nice to them because they do have skill with scissors and knives. <laughs> they do. Be nice to everyone working in the service industry. He did not live that long. He didn't. He only lived for 58 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. But it's in that victorian era time that you were talking about people didn't really expect to live much beyond 40 years old and he was suffering his whole life from lung issues and his gout got really bad later on Mm -mm. he aside from the museum is best known for the mooter flap which he used in order to treat burn victims which is a grafting procedure we still use today in 1851 he was elected as a member to the american philosophical society By the 1850s, though, his health was worsening. Coughing often brought up blood. The gout in his hands was so severe that for his surgeries, he enlisted the help of Dr. Pancoast. Fatigue was a daily handicap, and after seeking treatment from the doctors in Europe who were his friends, Mütter accepted that little could be done, and he turned his energies to his legacy. But he's a Victorian era, I imagine, fairly rich dude. Guy, just go to Switzerland or somewhere and... Get the air. Lay around. (laughs) But then no one would remember what an amazing man he was. I know. So So during his life, Mütter collected artifacts relating to surgery, which he used when teaching. These ranged from illustrations and wax models to actual specimens of human anatomy. It mattered very much to Mütter that a permanent place be secured to preserve and share the over 1,700 specimens he had collected. After almost two years of negotiation, in December of 1858, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia agreed to establish the Mütter Museum, which opened in 1863, four years after his death. So, Rowan, I know you've been to the museum, but many of our listeners, I'm assuming, have not. So let's talk about three of my favorite exhibits. Yes. They're in the museum. Okay. <laughs> There's a ton of them, but these are three that I got excited about. So the first one is the Chevalier Jackson exhibit. Dr. Jackson was a renowned Philadelphia otolaryngologist. He was born in 1865 and died in 1958. An otolaryngologist is a person who studies disease of the ear and throat. He developed methods and tools for removing foreign objects from human airways. So you know all those little things you saw in the museum? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) God, yes. This is so good. 
the Jackson Collection includes 2,374 inhaled or swallowed foreign bodies that Dr. Jackson extracted from patients' throats, esophaguses, and lungs during his almost 75-year-long career. Most of these items are on display. Ah, it's so cool! (laughs) According to a New York Times article by Amanda Schaefer, quote, Jackson retrieved these objects from people's upper torsos, generally with little or no anesthesia. Oh, no, I'm out now. (laughs) He was so intent on assembling his collection that he once refused to return a swallowed quarter, even when its owner threatened his life. Really, though? Like a quarter? I know. He was a fetishist, no question, says Mary Capello, the author of Swallow, a book about Jackson and his bizarre collection. But his obsession had the effect of saving lives. That's kind of amazing and lucky for us that his madness made possible forms of rescue. Jackson was an artisan and a mechanical prodigy, a humanist and an ascetic, whom colleagues sometimes described as aloof or cold. He spent hundreds of hours crushing peanuts with forceps to learn exactly how much pressure to exert. He experimented extensively on mannequins and dogs. That's actually very cool. He seems like the classic, he wasn't in it because he loved people and helping people and children. He was obsessed with perfecting his craft. And this was the craft he chose. That's kind of cool. I find I included it because I found him so interesting. In the days that he operated, surgery was associated very highly with mortality, and few physicians were willing or even able to peer into the air and food passages, let alone remove objects like an open safety pin, which he removed. Yet Miss Capello writes that the survival rate among patients from whom he removed objects was better than 95%. Yeah, he's the guy. This man was a genius. He's a genius. He seems like a pretty crappy person to interact with, but he was a genius at what he did. I don't need the guy saving my life to be nice. I really don't. (laughs) Nope. So I have a picture here of him with his collection. Interestingly, I mean, in modern times, medical malpractice suits are more common in in doctors who have poor bedside manner, not necessarily doctors who aren't as skilled. Yeah. So, Rowan, would you please describe this picture of Dr. Jackson and his extensive collection? Well, he looks exactly like how you would imagine him to. In this picture, he's an older gentleman. He's wearing a very tight surgeon's cap. He's wearing the lab coat. It's got flashy little cuffs and collar and pockets and... He is surrounded by those, you know those little boxes you see, like, butterflies pinned into? Yes. They'll be fuzzy on the bottom, and they close with a little glass pressing everything in. He's holding up one, but then there are just dozens around him on all sides. And he's pointing, It's he's pointing with a little stick, but for some reason it looks to me like he's pointing with giant scissors. Oh, I could see that. It, it's the way he's holding the handle. It is. So he's pointing, and the one that he's holding up has so many open safety pins in it. And 
like just underneath him, there's a bunch more open safety pins. And off to his right, there's open open safety pins. Like just Lots of them. so many sharp objects that he pulled out of people. Ugh. The buttons in the top right right hand corner, I can see. The open safety pins are disconcerting. Also, the buttons I'm over here like, why don't you just let the kid, you know? Well, sometimes it gets stuck. I know someone who has a kid who swallowed a penny. And there's an x-ray of the penny just in her esophagus. She could breathe, but it was stuck in there. Yummy. <laughs> she was not upset about it, but her, obviously her parents were. Coppery. Hmm. A little bit of spice. A little bit of spice. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the next exhibit. It is Albert Einstein's brain, or at least a section of it. Okay. The Mütter Museum is one of only two places in the world where you can see pieces of Albert Einstein's brain. These sections are 20 microns thick and stained with crestal violet and are preserved in glass slides on display in the main museum gallery. According to Smithsonian Magazine, in reference to how the museum even managed to get a hold of Einstein's brain, despite him famously saying he wanted to be cremated so that no one would worship his bones. <laughs> they say that in the early morning hours of April 8th, 1955, Albert Einstein died at Princeton Hospital in New Jersey. Thomas Harvey, the pathologist on duty that night, performed the autopsy and determined that the professor had died of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. What he did next has been the subject of great controversy over the last half century. Quite simply, Harvey took Einstein's brain without permission, which some would call stealing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's 100% stealing. And since, well, at the time of this recording, Texas is mm -hmm. uh, not believing in bodily autonomy specifically for women and people with uteruses. Um, and it's interesting because in the medical world, you have to give permission for people to draw your blood or harvest your organs because even when you're dead, you have bodily autonomy. And we could mm -hmm. get into a, a debate about reproductive rights, but uh, he definitely did steal Einstein's brain. He stole Einstein's brain and also you can join the satanic temple. Um, they have a religious exemption for women in Texas. And people with uteruses to have reproductive rights. Woo-woo! Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. It's great. We do love them. Okay. So, in Dr. Harvey's defense, what he did wasn't particularly unusual at the time. <laughs> of course. As pointed out in Rest in Pieces, The Curious Fates of Famous Corpses by writer and editor Bess Lovejoy, hospitals in those days often took organs they deemed relevant or interesting for study. While Harvey didn't have permission for his extraction, he was later able to get the okay from Hans Albert Einstein, the professor's oldest son, for keeping the brain so long as he used it only for scientific study. Real quick, have you ever had something surgically removed from you that you didn't get to keep? Teeth. Those are the only things. Right. Doesn't it irk you that you didn't get to keep them? Like, you made those. Yeah. The first time I had to get a tooth removed, I did get to keep it. I don't know where it went. The the wisdom teeth, I didn't get to keep. I feel like, I listen, I know there's biohazards and stuff, but if you made something 
you should get to have it. Like, yeah. Like I don't know if if they. I had a kidney stone. I don't have my kidney stone. I worked really hard on that. That's basically a pearl. <laughs> I didn't get to keep it. <laughs> Is that that's a little mooder museum-y of me? I think. I love that for you. I do. <laughs> All right, so in November of 2011, the Mütter Museum received a call from Lucy Wark Adams with an offer of one of Harvey's boxes of slides. Due to the excitement over the donated specimens, the Mütter Museum was asked to get a working exhibit up in a matter of days. <gasps> the slides have been on display ever since, and they form the only permanent exhibit of Einstein's brain in the world. Well, did they examine it to see if it's extra special or big or... I think they have. I don't have the results of those examinations here. Tracy, gosh darn it. <laughs> I do have a picture of his brain for you to look at. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. I don't know what I expected. You did explain that they were very, very, very tiny slices on slides. It's it's basically just a drawer with slots of tiny, tiny little, like, deli turkey slices of brain put between glass. Mm -hmm. Dyed with uh, crystal violet. Except they're kind of brown. They do look brown. They look like they haven't been dyed. They just look like what I would imagine old slices of brain looks like. They actually look not unlike, like, a fungus growth on a slide, I would imagine, looks. Mm-hmm. They do. You can see the folds of the brain. They have those brain shapes. Truly, the brain of Einstein, I would not be surprised if it had a golden glow around it. And this Truly. does not have that at all. You know what I've realized it looks like? It looks like a, a sliced walnut. Oh, it looks exactly like a walnut. Mm-hmm. Aw, Einstein's <laughs> little walnut. Einstein's little walnut. That doesn't sound like we're talking about his brain. Oh, all right, no. so... One of the most famous displays at the Mütter Museum is the Hurdle Skull Collection, which you hinted at earlier. The College of Physicians has an article that goes into great detail on this collection. And in the article, they say that this display is described as the centerpiece of the Mütter Museum. The Hurdle Cranium Collection consists of 139 human skulls arranged neatly in rows in a large display cabinet. As a professor of anatomy in Vienna, Dr. Joseph Hertel built his world-renowned career and contributions to anatomy and physical anthropology on his ability to collect human remains. In Vienna, like in other areas of Europe and North America, the cadaveric trade was fortified by bodies of the lower classes from hospitals and cemeteries. The destitute were often deprived proper burials and instead ended up in collections such as Hertel's. Along with receiving bodies donated by local hospitals, Hurdle also employed so-called resurrectionist men who would exhume dead bodies to sell into anatomical study. I want to do a whole episode on the resurrection men. Oh, absolutely. They're so interesting because basically it was illegal to study bodies, but also bodies needed to be studied in order to advance science. That's the whole idea of Having a bell next to the grave, you would have someone mm -hmm. watch the grave to make sure no one stole the body to give to science. This is all happening during that time. 
1862, the body parts of the Viennese lower class that were objectified and unwittingly gathered into Hurdle's osteological collections were both famous and award-winning. Hurdle believed his cranium collection was unmatched, but in reality, such skeletal collections were not rare by the mid-19th century. Certainly, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia could have procured crania from more accessible sources. The college, however, specifically wanted the Hurdle collection to give legitimacy to the museum and mark its change from a personal collection to a full-fledged medical museum. Ironically, the inclusion of the Hurdle crania only served to elevate the status of the museum as a wonder room, and not really as a center for medical education. While only open to practicing or training physicians in the 19th century, the museum was still visited mostly by those who were reeled in by the promise of seeing medical oddities and body parts on display. Okay, I have a picture of the skull collection here for you. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so... Imagine your or a grandmother's very intense china cabinet, beautiful mm-hmm, wood, mm-hmm. glass windows, locked, of course, because you don't get to touch it. You only get to look. Mm-hmm. And inside, it's just rows upon rows. I think in the photograph, there's six rows, but there might be more. And it just extends as far as the photograph goes of just skulls and it's so cool because it shows how skulls look so the same and also so different yes and there's there's ones with tiny little faces and ones with big crania and and they just all simultaneously look so unifying and so unique i couldn't agree more i think an individual skull, if you had handed me any of these skulls, I would have told you they all look the same, but put next to each other, they look so different. Yeah, I uh, I would totally donate my skull to something like this when I'm done with it. Totally a thing you could do. The other thing, if you wanted to donate your money, is in 2012, the Mooter launched the Save Our Skulls campaign, in which <gasps> the museum gave the public the opportunity to adopt a skull. A guest would provide the museum with a $200 donation to sponsor the restoration and mounting of the chosen skull, selected from a list of their names, along with other details such as age, sex, cause of death, etc. That list was available on the Mooter Museum's website. The skull would be restored and put on display with the addition of a small plaque with the words, Saved by, preceding the donor's name. What? This allowed for the museum to update and protect the display to ensure the skulls remained unharmed. Is this still an option? Because we have now land that allows us to be ladies. According to Scotland, can we have a skull? I would totally sponsor a skull. Looking it up now, let's see if they still have it. Take my money. (laughs) (laughs) I, I unfortunately... I think all the skulls have been saved. Well, that's good, but also I'm bummed for me. But I'm glad for the skulls. I know. I tried to go to the page, and it says page not found. All the skulls were saved. That's good. That's good. Yes, it is good. What if we donate a skull? Just a a wild suggestion. (laughs) Just walk in and hand them a skull. (laughs) Where'd you get this? How'd you come to own it? I don't know. Here's a skull. Also, we need a plaque. 
If you need a plaque, here's the $200 for that, too. Still give them the money so they take the skull. Yeah, here's $200 in a skull. Give us a plaque, please. Yeah. Is it a good plan? No. Is it our plan? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Done. <laughs> All right. Would you like to hear a story? Yes, I super would. Okay. I've always liked watching the way things change. It happens so slowly in nearly imperceptible increments as time... Are you telling this from the point of view of a skull? No. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I love you so much. You're so brilliant. Uh, Sorry. Continue. You're so cool. (laughs) How can you write from any other perspective when you see that? You literally can't. There was no other choice. you're so cool. Okay, okay, go, 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 sorry. I've always liked watching the way things change. It happens so slowly, in nearly imperceptible increments as time inches its way forward through the years. One day, a man decides not to wear his hat. Then another. Then another, until suddenly hats are out of fashion and every full head of hair and every bald head is on display. Esther, who sits to my left, doesn't like the current fashion for men. She thinks it looks lazy and uncoordinated. She preferred the fashion in the early to mid-1900s. She said that was the best it would ever be. I disagree. I think anything that stays the same for too long can't possibly be the best version of itself. But I'm always sharing my opinion on this or that. I can't help it. I think it's a way for me to feel seen, or at the very least, to feel known. Mary, who they call Henry, sits to my right. She doesn't share her opinion on things very much. She says it's because she prefers to just sit and watch as the people go by, day by day, but sometimes I wonder if she misses it. Being alive, that is. We all led such different lives, and yet every single one of us ended up here, in this place, staring out from behind a pane of glass as curious onlookers walk past each day. We are tucked away in neat little rows for your viewing pleasure. But we see you, even when you think you're alone. The children running about, some curious, others frightened by us. The adults who feel much the same way, though they tried to hide their emotions behind a placid smile. The security guard who locks the museum up at night, singing as he goes about. The curator inspecting us to make sure we are all safe and sound in our little home. The faces change, as do the names and the silhouettes, but ultimately, they are all the same. Children are always children. It doesn't matter if they wear lace caps and belt-buckled shoes or sneakers and t-shirts. They still want to play and explore and learn and experiment, and they will always grow into the adults who wearily chase them about the museum. And I will be here to watch it all. Which is why I enjoy noticing the changes, the minutia of day-to-day life as it walks in front of our case. It reminds me that even though we stay the same, the world around us is constantly changing and growing and evolving. So I want to say this, 
for all that you stare at us day after day, just remember that we are staring back, watching as you move about the museum, noticing the curiosity or disgust or excitement as it flicks across your face. We will always be here with our faces unchanging and our eyes unmoving, watching, seeing, and observing. Oh, you are so cool. You are so <laughs> cool. That is so nice. First, I wrote a story from the point of view of a skull, and I love that my friend goes, you're cool. <laughs> you are so cool. I got it from the first moment. I'm so glad. It was the first thing I thought of. When you look at that display of skulls and you're staring at them, all I could think about was them staring back. Uh, there was just no other choice for me. I like to imagine them at night talking with, like, chomp, chomp, chomp of, like, the yeah, teeth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I my like God. I, I just want to kiss sweet little Mary they call Henry right on the top of her sweet little skull. <laughs> I like the idea of, their, you know, they've got their little neighborhoods, their little clusters. You're stuck with people next to you. And I also like the idea of they think Henry is a male skeleton, but really... She went by Mary. Like, I, I, the, the truth that they know as the skulls. <sighs> I just had this whole world in my head. Oh, my gosh. And imagine if you're a skull on the lower level and so all you get to know is people's shoes. Hey, oh, maybe my... you really like shoes. Right. And what if you're stuck next to someone you don't like? I know. Ah, oh, Tracy. <laughs> you just bring it every time. Oh, my God. You're so sweet. Thank you very much. This was fun. This was, I knew I wanted to write from the point of view of a skull and I didn't know exactly what that would mean. And then as I was falling asleep last night, I had like a Jimmy Neutron brain blast of uh -huh. the idea of Esther and Mary and talking about, you know, it's like old ladies gossiping together. Like that was the idea, but it's the skulls in the collection talking about all the people they've seen over the years. I adapted my story from a brain blast from last night, too. You and I are just on the same wavelength. We are. We are. Okay, if someone handed you one of these skulls, yeah. would you hold it? Yes. Okay, cool. Me, too. I mean, not. I wouldn't even hesitate. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so, I mean, there are a lot of different things that you can do with your body after your death that are not just, like, sticking it in a box in the ground. Mm -hmm. And I would totally be open to becoming one of those people that they use to study crime scenes or, mm -hmm. you know, medical yeah. science. Like, I'm very... I would absolutely donate my body to science. Available for that. Yeah. I agree. Like, and yeah, just imagine someone holding your sweet little, little skull head in, in their hands and calling you not the right name. Oh, what if they're like, oh, Jamie... <laughs> Jamie's such a good eh, skull I'm used to it I spent my whole life being referred to by my twin sister that's okay <laughs> <laughs> this was a really fun episode you and I we geeked out I think we really revealed how spooky we are it really we really revealed a lot about who we are because it's so you to go into the Victorian photograph era. The, like, that is so your space. And medical history is so a space that I love. We <laughs> really just went into our happy little Memento Mori places. Yeah, I, I love Memento Mori. And actually, here's a question that I would love to ask you because I just 
I would love for other people to hear the answer because we've discussed this, but what about the Muter Museum do you think makes it Memento Mori specifically? Like, well, it, aside from the fact that it's got the skulls and all the stuff that I mentioned, it has a ton of, it has a balance of medical history with actual history. So there's mm-hmm. the soap woman um, who was put on display in quote unquote freak shows around the country. And it talks about what that whole era was. So it it talks about how we thought about medical history, how we thought about disease the way that we put things on display. And then it also goes into the reality of it. So the skeleton that you pointed out in the picture is the skeleton of conjoined twins that famously made an entire career over the fact that they were conjoined twins. And then they eventually retired. Oh, that was an adult height? Yeah. Yeah, they were conjoined at the, I think it was the intestine. Wow, they lived a very long life. They did. They lived really long lives. There's a, a plaster cast of them in the museum as well. They married sisters and retired on a farm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, didn't cover them because they ran out of time. But there's a ton of specimens in this museum. There's the I think the uh, there's tumors and livers and all these things that force us to think about our bodies and how far they can carry us and what it looks like for them to be harmed. Everything about it forces you to look at life and death and mortality and even the morality of how we have put that on display for each other throughout the years. That was a beautifully succinct answer. Oh, thank you. I did not feel like it was succinct, but it definitely I love I love medical history for that reason. It's far enough removed that you can be interested in it and poke at it and make fun of it but also learn from it. And it has that vintage feel. You know me, I love that I want to, I want to look like I live in an old apothecary. I love that whole vibe, even though it comes with a lot of problems. I think having a phrenology statue is interesting, especially from someone who has such an interest in psychology, but that was an extremely racist practice. And so there's a balance of being interested in the style and the feeling and the aesthetic of something without believing in it. You know, vintage vintage dresses, not vintage values, mm-hmm. that whole thing. Right. That's how I feel about this whole museum and, and the displays and the aesthetic interest that I have in it. Right. And I've read uh, a couple – I think it was a blog post from someone who works at the museum now, and they work very hard to be accurate to the history and all of its ugliness and excitement and all Mm -hmm. the good and the bad. And I really appreciate that. We have to go again. Yes. There's also another museum I'll pitch really quickly in Philadelphia called the Wagner Museum that is – it is a museum of a museum. So the museum was created in the 1800s. I believe it was 1810. It has not been updated since. So the information is incorrect. It is a natural history museum. They have an incorrect dinosaur skeleton (gasps) in the back. That's cool. It's really, really cool. Um, I went in college and it's amazing. And I believe it's pay as you please. Um, And they have their old lecture hall still available that they hold lectures in. It's really, really cool. So between the Muter Museum and the, the Wagner Museum, my nerdy scientist heart 
is very happy. I feel as if you and I both had an abundance of information in this episode. I know I had to remove some of what I wrote and put it in a new document for later. Oh, yeah. So, and I came up with another topic I want to cover. So probably we will be revisiting this idea in the not too distant future. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't cover the, the, the conjoined twins that are in the museum because I want to cover them in an episode, their whole life story. Wow. Okay, done. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Rowan, how about you tell me something good? Yeah. Um. So I mentioned it at the top in the form of the French toast, but uh, the other day I went out to eat at this this restaurant that I really love. It's a vegan restaurant that's near me that I really like because I can't have gluten or dairy. And vegan restaurants in particular are very good at kind of telling you um, mm-hmm. what's in things. And it's indoor and outdoor, which makes it particularly nice for this period of global pandemonium. Yep. And they have a tree in the little courtyard area that's called the wishing tree. And then people put little scraps of paper where they write things that they want all over it. Aww. And so the tree's always fluttering with all these beautiful little pieces of paper. Um, I think right now they're shaped like leaves, but sometimes they do butterflies and... It just it creates this very beautiful setting. It has fairy lights, and they make this ginger juice, apple, lemon drink that is both a punishment and just an absolute pleasure to drink. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And it was just really, really nice to go out and spend time with humans that I love and just just be out in the world. Again, yeah. kind of. Yeah. I mean, I know that we're all out and about now, but I still really think that those moments feel extra, extra valuable. Yes, I agree. Totally agree. And good food and good company and, mm-hmm. you know, good places. It's just, it's definitely something good. Yeah. It's also apple season. Even if it's hotter than Hades in LA, I'm, I'm doing it. Pumpkin spice and apples. I love that for you so much. Yeah, I do too. Now that I'm a convert, darn it, I think I might have ruined my life, actually. I think you've only improved it. All right, what you said. <laughs> Tracy, tell me something good. All right, mine is similar in the vein of good good friends getting out together. So for Casey's birthday, who, if you guys remember, hosted the Haunted California episode last year, uh, mm-hmm. and may or may not be making a guest appearance at some point on our podcast once again. For her birthday, we rented out a room in a movie theater. So one of the show show Seriously? Oh, that's so cool. Rooms. Yeah, yeah. We rented that out. We all pitched in together. And we watched Knives Out, which is like her favorite movie. And so many of us hadn't seen it. And it's very spooky and kind of fall. She loves a whodunit. <laughs> and it was so cool. Like it was on the theater big playbill thing of they were showing Knives Out at 2 o'clock. Aww. You couldn't buy tickets to it because we – it was sent set as sold out. But we got um, – included with it, you got a medium popcorn and a drink and you got to place your <sighs> drink orders. And this was one of those movie taverns, so we also got to order food. And it was just so cool to have this huge theater to ourselves to shout and talk and share mm-hmm. facts and all sit together and – it was just so fun. Then we went over to her place afterwards and had cake and celebrated her birthday. And I hand embroidered a uh, sweatshirt for her. So that was her Really? Yeah. I did flowers all around the collar of the sweatshirt. Pictures or it didn't happen? 
I'll see. I don't know that I, I don't remember if I. I'll make Casey take a picture. I want to see it. Okay. <laughs> like I don't remember if I've taken pictures of it. That's so cool that you did that. Um, so it was just really fun. Yeah, she didn't want um because we all spent money on the theater. She was like, "Well, don't spend money on gifts for me." And I was like, "Got it. Won't spend money on gifts for you." I didn't know you could <laughs> embroider clothes. You're so talented. Thanks. I it's um you know every two weeks I have a new hobby. So. Oh well, that's a thing. Yeah, that one I picked up a while ago, but it was fun. It's funny. I saw Knives Out for my birthday at a drive-in movie theater during 2020. Yeah, it was so good. So good. Yeah, I I, I think I liked it extra because, I mean, at the time, going to a drive-in movie theater, drive-in movie theaters always feel cool. But, you know, yeah. during the global pandemic, it was extra cool because you could go out and you didn't have to interact with anyone. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you guys are ad- adapting that for another birthday into kind of another pandemonium thing is very mm-hmm. cool. It was really fun. I would pay to do that again for sure. You gotta get you gotta get a good number of people for it to be a reasonable cost. Right. But it it was worth it. It was lovely. I can see us doing that again. So you and I can't just like rent out a movie theater. That's not normal. I mean it would cost a lot, but we could do it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Wow. We did it. All right. Happy spooky season. I hope you guys all enjoy the merch that Jamie has been working so hard on for everyone. I hope you guys are enjoying some slices of fall, even if the weather's not not stereotypically fall wherever you are. Happy spooky season. Hope you enjoyed getting spooky with us. Yes, and thank you all for joining us. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. He was an otolaryngologist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was an otolaryngologist. Otolaryngologist. <laughs> otolaryngologist. <laughs>